Well, now it's time to hear from the Word of God as it's proclaimed, as it's preached. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans. That won't be a surprise to many of you as we've been there for some time and just really loving the book of Romans. It addresses every topic, really, that Christians would want to know about in some way. No wonder it's called the greatest letter ever written. We're in Romans 11 this morning. I've entitled the message, The Rich Root of the Olive Tree, Part 1, which means at least this passage will take us two sermons to work through. If you recall, Romans is about the gospel. It's about what we are to believe, what we are to have faith in. That's Christ himself and what he's done, that he died for sinners, that he was raised again on the third day, and that all of this was according to the scriptures. And Paul has been endeavoring to open that up to Christians. That's us. We need to be reminded of that fact, that all people are sinners, whether Jew or Gentile. And that they all need a savior to save them from that sin. And of course, that's what he did in the first part of the book. Then he opened up justification. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The great doctrine in Romans. And then he talked about what we receive as Christians because of that. We receive peace with God. We receive all of these blessings. We're a new person in Christ. We're no longer a slave to sin. We're now a slave to God. And he is the most wonderful, good master we could ever have. Then Paul went through Romans 8 and told us that we are freed from the law. We have the Holy Spirit. And that because God has predestined and called and justified, he will glorify every believer. Everyone who's trusted in Christ will make it to the end. And no one, nothing, not even Satan, will cast us out. God himself will never cast us out. So that brought us up to Romans 9, which opened a new section in Paul's argument, because if no one can lose their salvation, what has happened to the nation of Israel? What has happened to God's people from the Old Testament now that Christ has come and they have denied him as Savior for the most part? What has happened? Well, Paul starts off in Romans 9 saying, well, it's very simple. God hasn't chosen every Jewish person to be saved. That's why some of them don't believe. That's why unbelievers exist up until their death. Now, if someone isn't, by the way, this is just application, but if someone isn't believing today, you can't say they'll never believe. You don't know that yet. You keep taking the gospel to them. But Paul has said in Romans 9, not everybody has been chosen by God. Chapter 10, he said, look, the Jews don't believe themselves. So it's their responsibility. Is it God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? It's both. It's always both. God is sovereign over all things, and man is responsible for what he thinks, what he does, what he believes. That brought us to chapter 11, which now Paul gets very specific about the nation of Israel as a whole. And he uses this wonderful analogy that I'm about to read to you, this metaphor, really, the rich root of the olive tree. So let's start in Romans 11, verse 11. I'm going to go all the way back to where we started last week. You need to see the context. And in your Bible, this is probably sectioned off as one section, 11 through 24 here. But I'm preaching today just verses 16 to 20. Starting in verse 11, I say then, did they stumble, that's Israel, so as to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more will their fullness be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast against them, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This is a wonderful passage here where this ongoing metaphor of the olive tree is used. And it's often not a passage that we come to a lot and do study on. And so as I've studied it this week, I've learned so much and seen here once again the relationship between Jew and Gentile, between God's promises to Israel and how us believing Gentiles are grafted in. Now, some of you may not be familiar with olive trees. I'm not very familiar with them either. I've heard they can grow here. We planned on trying this at our house a few years ago, but I looked it up and it said the the frost that comes here isn't so good for olive trees. So I thought we'd try some fig trees. This tells you my gardening skills. So we got a fig tree and put it in the front because we've done lemons and oranges and you roll those in in the wintertime and they keep growing. Well, the fig tree goes in the ground and every year the thing looks like it dies in the wintertime. And my kids are saying, Dad, cut it down, throw it into the fire, you know, let's burn the brush. And every year I say, let's just wait. And about late April, it starts blooming again, gets so high and the next winter goes back to the ground dead. However, it's never produced a fig in three years. So we're giving it one more year. And then we're going to throw it just like, was it John the Baptist who said the, the root is about to be cut and thrown into the fire. That's pretty much my experience with fruit growing on our property. But Paul here, even though that's not really his, his business, he's a tent maker as we read in Acts 18, he understands that Israel is often called an olive tree. He understands the importance of an olive tree, the the fruitfulness of an olive tree. Not to eat, because eating olives back then was was very bitter. They didn't process them like we do today. The Romans eventually would pickle them and eat them in meals. But they smashed the olives for olive oil. And olive oil was a staple of the diet back then. So you can imagine that taking care of these trees, cultivating these trees, making sure they had the right nutrients was so important. It was up there with taking care of a vineyard so that wine could be produced. And so here, Paul now brings this out to describe what he's been talking about here. 
Specifically here, since verse 11, this relationship between believing Gentiles and the nation of Israel. Today, I want us to see five basics of this Gentile Christian relationship to Israel. And we won't even get through all five today. So the first three today, Lord willing, and then the second set, the next two next week. So five basics of the Gentile Christian relationship to Israel. What is our relationship to Israel? How has God done what he's done with Gentiles for the past 2,000 years now in grafting us in to this olive tree? This is a rich and complex passage. So I decided we needed to break it down into five points spread out over two messages. Five basics of the Gentile Christian relationship to Israel. First of all, the root of Israel ensures the branches will be saved. Not ensures with an I, but with an E. God's promises to the forefathers of the nation of Israel make certain, ensures, makes certain that Israel will be saved as a nation one day. Remember, that's where he's headed in chapter 11. He's been building up to that and making his argument, making his case. When you get in chapter 11 to verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. Then he backs it up with an Old Testament quote. So that's where he's headed. And he starts here with an example of the root, the root of Israel, I'll call it. And that ensures that the branches will be saved. That's verse 16. You probably wonder if your Bible has paragraphs, why I didn't preach that in the last message. And it can be connected in, with the last message. But here's where he brings up the root in the branches and then opens it up fully in 17 to 24. And so I chose to include it in this week's message. Verse 16 connects what came right before it. It connects 11 through 15. That showed us that even though Israel as a nation has been temporarily rejected, they've been rejected because they denied the Messiah. They rejected Christ. And God said, Christ said there would be a punishment on them, that their temple would be destroyed, that their city would be destroyed. And yet, Paul is reminding us here throughout this whole chapter that God is not done with the nation Israel. It might seem that way today, and yet it is only a temporary rejection. A rejection of those who do not believe in the Messiah, but not a rejection of the elect nation as a whole. In verse 15, he said, for if their rejection, so there is a rejection now. It's not permanent though. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, if their rejection has led to all these Gentiles in the purpose of God being brought in and being saved, if that's the case, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? But what will their acceptance be? He's talking about regeneration of their heart. They're going to come to life. God is going to save them. Before he gets there, though, he wants to continue talking to the Gentiles. And you'll see he's done that back in verse 12. He talks about his ministry to the Gentiles in verse 13. He says, I'm, a, I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. And so he begins talking directly to them. And, and many scholars, and this is correct, they get the idea here that there's some kind of tension in Rome, in this church. There's some kind of tension between the majority of the Gentiles and the minority of the Jewish believers here. There's tension going on in the church. He'll address that later with the conscience and legalism. But here, he wants to make sure that the Gentiles do not boast. He begins with this metaphor. He says, and if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. The first portions here, the first piece, your translation might say first fruits. 
the first fruits of an offering is what somebody gave to God out of all their produce. Everything that their land gave them, they would take the very first portions up and sacrifice it and give it to God. And that represented the whole. You take the first bit and you give it to God. And God said, that's what they should do in Israel. So it was consecrated. It was set apart. It was holy. The first fruits. Here he's talking about the first little batch of dough that you make. The first parts. The first portions. He's using it here in the baking illustration. He's saying simply that if the first part that you start with is set apart for God. If it is holy, then the bread when it's done, the whole lump will be holy. Will be set apart as well. If the little part of the bread that starts it is holy, then the idea is the whole lump will also be holy. Now he puts it another way. If the root is holy, the branches are too. If the root of the tree is set apart for God, if it is holy, then as the tree grows and the branches are connected to that same root, they are set apart as well. Now what are the first pieces of dough? And what is the root? There's a lot of debate. You can read pages and pages on this. But based on the context here and other Jewish writings that are coming out at the time that the Bible is being written. The Jews were also talking about this. The root is Abraham and the patriarchs. Specifically Abraham because of the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll look at in a moment. But Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob. That promise that God made to Abraham is confirmed to each one of them. So Abraham is the first Jew. He begins the nation of Israel. God calls him out. He's a pagan. He's in a pagan family. God calls him out of the the land that he lives in and brings him to the promised land. Later would be called the promised land. And God makes a promise to Abraham. Why? Not because Abraham did anything to earn it. Not because Abraham showed up holy and that's why God chose him. No, God chose Abraham and Abraham had faith. Abraham believed. Paul's unwrapped that in chapter 4 of Romans. Abraham had righteousness credited him because of his faith. Let's look at that Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 12 of Genesis. We're going to look at three covenants here that are all tied together. And this is the, the root is Abraham, but that's connected to the promises. The promises that God has given to Abraham to his son and grandson, and to his descendants. Genesis 12, verse 1. This is the shortened version. Later in chapter 15, God will expand upon this. And he will actually sacrifice the animal. He will cut the covenant. But in 12, 1, Yahweh said to Abram. So his name has not been changed yet by God to Abraham. Yahweh says, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God's covenant with Abraham. It expands later, chapter 15, all the way through 18 of Genesis. You get more conversation between God and Abraham. However, just looking at this, you'll see three promises. One was a land. 
And in 15, he actually takes Abraham there and he shows him this is the land. And he talks about the boundaries of that land. He also says that he's going to give Abraham a people. This is Abraham, an old man. He has no descendants yet. He wonders if he'll ever be able to have children. His wife actually laughs when God says they'll have a son because they're so old. But God says, I'll give you a people, a people that God will bless and protect. And the third one I'll call a savior, a savior. He says specifically that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But this we know from later scripture, this is the savior. This is the seed of woman promised in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the serpent's head. So now this savior, who's the seed of woman, will bless all the earth. And God comes to David in 2 Samuel 7. That's the next covenant I want you to look at here. 2 Samuel 7. And David is a descendant of Abraham. David's a descendant of Abraham. He is the king. The king that God chose. The king after God's own heart. The king that loves the Lord. The king that wrote many psalms of worship to the Lord. And here is David ruling over Israel in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. If you look at verse 12, this is what's called the Davidic covenant. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. That's in Genesis 12. It's reiterated multiple times to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now we have a descendant here, David, and it's a new covenant. It's the Davidic covenant, not the new covenant, but it connects back, the Davidic does, back to the Abrahamic. And 7.12 here, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. So David thinks this must be Solomon. This must be one of my sons. And if that's all we read, that's what we would think. And look at the next verse here. And he shall build a house for my name. Well, Solomon's going to build the temple and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, yes, Solomon will be the next one in line. But whoever this king is, is also going to rule forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, that can't be the Messiah. Because Messiah doesn't sin. doesn't even have a sin nature. But Solomon will sin. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. Okay, so that's Solomon. That's the the kings who will follow in the line of Solomon. But look at verse 15. My loving kindness shall not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. That's not Solomon. Solomon's not still around today. Forever includes today. Solomon died. Whoever this is talking about now, is someone way beyond Solomon, greater than Solomon. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan the prophet spoke to David. That's the Davidic covenant. That's the covenant God made with David that he is now fulfilling that idea that he gave to, that promise he gave to Abraham, that from you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the Jews are now looking for who is the king that will come And be the Davidic king. Who's the king in the line of David that will come? And we see that in the New Testament with the genealogies. And this expectation of a Messiah Davidic king. Let's look at one more covenant here in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah the prophet. 
This is the new covenant. It's contrasted with the old covenant. The old covenant would be the Mosaic. And we're not going to go over that. We've talked about the Mosaic covenant a bit when we looked at Romans 10, especially 10, 5. And that was the law that God gave Israel. But we're looking today at these unconditional covenants. Abraham is given a covenant. Doesn't depend on Abraham. God said, this is what I'll do. David's not asked to do anything. God simply says, there will be one from your line who will rule before me forever. Now, Jeremiah 31, we call this the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 35, because it's contrasted with the old Mosaic covenant. Let's just say, in summary, Israel didn't do well with the old covenant. God says, here's my law. Obey it. You will live in the land. They did not do well. They did not obey it. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed his law. They worshiped other gods. And God removed them from the land. That's what's happening here in Jeremiah. He is living during this time that Babylon is going to come and take the people into exile. But there's always hope. You read the prophets. We're reading Isaiah as a family and family worship right now. There's all this judgment. But after every little piece of judgment, there's what? There's hope. There's restoration that's coming. More judgment. But God is going to save his people one day. More judgment and then hope. And it's just beautifully mixed in the prophets like this. Here's some hope. Hope that benefits us even as Gentiles. Look at Jeremiah 31, 35. That says Yahweh, who gives, I'm sorry, let's back up. 31, 31, we'll get to 35. Behold, days are coming. So even though Israel is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians and taken into captivity, there's a day coming in the future when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, really the Israelite covenant given specifically to Israel. That one was conditional. They needed to obey it to stay in the land and be blessed. He says, it's not going to be like that one. It's not going to be like that one when I took them by the hand. I brought them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, they broke that one. I was like their husband, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. He's not going to give a law for them to obey. He's going to put his law within them. They will know what pleases the Lord. There's a heart change happening here. If you go to Ezekiel, you'll see that in Ezekiel 36. He talks a lot about the heart change and the cleansing. And take out the stony heart. You get a heart of flesh, a new heart, regeneration. Back to Jeremiah here. He says that I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he's going to put his law with them on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's going to make sure they love him. They believe in him. They follow him. Verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor. And each man his brother saying, no Yahweh, for they will all know me. There's a true change of heart, a change of life. They know the Lord. What John talks about in 1 John, when he says that we know him and we have the spirit, we have an anointing and we know something about God. Yes, we need the Bible still. He's not talking about that. But they know Yahweh. They're not confused about who God is. They know their God. They love their God. They obey their God. And he says 
that I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There's a new covenant coming that God's going to cut with them and they will be forgiven of all their sins. Now he's talking to Israel and Judah. So as of right now, we're not seeing anything about the Gentiles. Let's continue here. Verse 35. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the statutes for the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea that so its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these statutes are removed from before me, declares Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. If my word can be changed, if my promises can disappear, then fine, Israel can disappear. But the idea is that'll never happen. God's statutes, God's words are not removed before him. Verse 37, thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth and searched out below, then I will also reject all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. The idea is God's not rejected them because nobody can measure the whole universe. Nobody can count all the stars, all the particles in the universe. We may try to estimate those today, but no one can actually count them. And so God says, my promises will stand. So these are the three covenants now that are promised to Abraham and his descendants in relation to salvation and the Messiah. These are the promises made to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and their descendants. So now back to Romans eleven sixteen. You get the sense of what the, the root is, the patriarchs. The promises are tied in with that. And he's saying, if the root is holy, if God has set them apart, if God has promised this to Abraham is the idea, then the branches that go, grow from that, that come out from the root, will be holy. Their physical descendants will be set apart for God. John Murray, the great scholar, said this fact of consecration, that's what holiness entails, consecrating. He said it's derived from the patriarchs and is introduced here by the apostle as support for the ultimate recovery of Israel. There cannot be irremediable rejection of Israel. He, he's saying, look, Israel's not rejected completely. And finally, he says the holiness of theocratic consecration is not abolished and will one day be vindicated in Israel's fullness and restoration. Now, again, this doesn't mean every Jew will be saved. God never promised that. He's saying as a nation, he's not done with them, even though the Babylonians are coming to wipe out the nation, even though they won't believe in the Messiah. God is not done with them. He will save them. He will bring them back to himself. And we know that the new covenant where Jesus sacrificed himself and he said, as we know, every time we take the Lord's Supper, right? This is my blood for the new covenant. It's the sacrifice that ratifies the new covenant. So all that believe in Christ get the promises of the new covenant applied to them. First promise to the Jew, but then Jesus says it's also to the Gentile who believes. And yet so much of Israel has not believed at this point in history. They're not holy in themselves, but the branches will be holy is a promise that God is going to make sure when the tree is completely grown, that the Jewish descendants, the Israelite descendants will be holy and set apart for God. James Montgomery Boyce said, the Jews are a special people because of their descent from Abraham 
And this is true of them, even in their rebellious and unregenerate state. It means that even yet God has not given up on Israel. So now he, bring, he brings that principle. He says, the root of Israel ensures the branches will be saved. And yet there's still Jews who are not saved. So he begins to discuss that here in the next point. Number two, the root of Israel supports Gentile believers. What about the Gentiles? The root of Israel supports Gentile believers, verses 17 and 18. He wants to now start addressing this pride that many Gentile Christians have in the Roman church. And it can arise in their heart over unbelieving Israel. And we're going to see why that is. But he says we must remember who supports whom. Who supports whom. Paul now picks up the metaphor of this root and branches and begins to explain it in more detail. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off. These are branches of an olive tree. He tells us it's an olive tree by the end of this verse. But if the branches are broken off. He's talking about the unbelieving Israelites. Physical descendants of Abraham who did not believe. They have been snapped off. When you're pruning a tree, you snap off the unproductive branches. Either they're going the wrong direction, so you want to make the tree look better and grow better. Or in ancient times, these branches weren't producing well, and so you clip them off. You threw them into the fire to burn. And he says, notice, look at the text, some of the branches. Not all of them. Some of them were severed off by God. Paul is saying that there is a remnant. There are still believing branches left descending from the root of Abraham. They're still believing Jews even to this day, although they may be small. But he says some of the branches were broken off due to the unbelief. We've seen that in chapter 10. Due to, to God's hardening, they are unbelieving Jews that were broken off. But some, the word some tells us that there are those who remain. Now he begins to address the Gentiles. And you, Gentile Christians, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them. Gentiles are not naturally part of this tree. Gentiles are not, I know it's hard for many people to believe, but they're not physical descendants of Abraham. Believing Gentiles are spiritual descendants. Right now, he's just talking about the natural descendants. He's saying that Gentiles are from a different tree altogether. They don't have access to these covenants unless God takes them from the wild olive and puts them on this cultivated olive tree. Now they're connected to the root. They have access to those promises. He says, there were some natural branches broken off. And then you, Gentiles, being from a wild olive tree, a wild olive tree being described as a small scraggly bush that produces nothing useful. It's not really useful. The only useful thing is to graft the other way. You take the wild plant who's used to living out in the wild, you chop the branches off and put cultivated olive branches on that tree. That's the only use for it in ancient times. Paul's talking about the reverse here for a point here. But a wild tree doesn't produce good fruit, doesn't produce many olives. In other words, the wild olive tree has no access to those promises. Go to Ephesians 2. He makes it very clear to the Ephesians where they were at before they were saved. And he's talking there again to Gentiles in Ephesians 2. In verse 12, he says, remember. 
He wants the Gentiles to remember where they've come from. Remember, you were at that time, before you were saved, you were at that time without Christ. You might say today, well, I grew up in the church. I heard of Jesus. Now, until your heart was changed, you did not have Christ as Savior and King. You were without Christ. You were alienated, here it is, from the citizenship of Israel. You had no connections to those promises, promised to the nation. And strangers to the covenants of promise. You might have heard about the Abrahamic covenant. You might have sang that song in Sunday school, Father Abraham, right? Some kids shouldn't be singing that because they're not his spiritual children yet. But I understand the point of teaching kids about that. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. So are you. How are you one of them until your heart's been changed and you have faith? But that's okay. We still let our kids sing it sometimes. Back to Ephesians 2.12. Alienated from the citizenship of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope. That's what it means. If you don't have access to these covenants, then there's no hope without God in the world. Because God chose Abraham. He set Abraham apart. He started something new with Abraham. It's not that Noah wasn't saved or Adam wasn't saved. But with Abraham, he set him apart for a special purpose that he's going to work out in history when it comes to salvation. And he says, we, the Gentiles, were wild olives. John Calvin says, for the origin of the Gentiles was as it were from some wild and unfruitful olive, as nothing but a curse was to be found in their whole race. He should say our whole race because he's talking about himself as well, right? There's no promise given to the ancestors of the Gentile. There's no natural relationship from them to Abraham and the promises God gave to them. But look what Paul says. Here's one of these wonderful, wonderful blessings we see here of what God does, his grace. But you were grafted in among them. There were some branches broken off. There's still some left. And he took you from this wild olive tree and he grafted you in. He, he carefully took time to graft you in and make sure you were connected with the root. So as the sap started flowing, you had a connection to Abraham and the promises of God. You're, yes, you're among the believing remnant of Israel in that tree. But God has grafted in believing Gentiles. He has taken us wild ungodly people and he has set us apart and put us in that tree, the tree that connects to the covenants. And he says, you've become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. It's not enough that he's just grafted us in, but now we're connected to this rich root. The olive tree mentioned at the end of verse 17 here is not the wild olive. It's a cultivated olive tree. It's, it's the one that everybody wanted to have in their backyard. It's the one that olive farmers would use to get their olive oil from many trees. The olive tree here is not the church. It's not what Paul says here. He's talking about Abraham being the root. He's talking about Jewish descendants who believe still left on there and Gentiles who believe inserted onto their engrafted in. What is he talking here about? It's best to just say the people of God. There's people of God in the Old Testament. These are God's people. These are God's chosen. These are the ones who believe. And there's people of God in the New Testament. And they're all part of one big, huge olive tree. He's not giving us a dissertation on the church. He will talk later about Jew and Gentile in the church today. But here he's just talking about the promises of God that go to the people of God. The olive tree here originally stood for Israel. 
Hosea 14, 6. His shoots will go forth. And his splendor, this is the olive tree, Israel, will be like the olive tree. And his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. So as Paul's writing this, and Jewish Christians are reading this in Rome, they would have thought, yeah, olive tree. The tree is Israel, the root, Abraham and the covenants that connect to Abraham. Jeremiah eleven sixteen, Yahweh called your name. A green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. And then God says, even though it's beautiful, with the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its foliage has an evil demise. So Israel is referred to as an olive tree in the Old Testament. And yet, here are Gentile Christians being grafted in. Yes, there were Gentiles saved in the Old Testament. We see that over and over. But here, Paul says, the gospel's gone out to Gentiles. The Jews have rejected it. God has taken it to the Gentiles. And this was all part of his plan. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't like us who wake up one day and say, things aren't working out. I'm going to change my mind on this and do a different method. I'm going to come up with a different plan. No, this was all part of God's plan from the beginning. In the New Testament, we see so much more of this plan that God gives. Gentile believers are said to be added to the tree. So the tree analogy here expands to include all the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. Beginning with Israel and a few Gentiles in the Old Testament, now expanding to all the Gentiles that come in during this age and the New Testament and forward. So who are the people of God? God's people. Really simple. They're now partakers, Paul says. They're participating here. They're partakers with believing Israel and the blessings of the covenants. And he says here, look at it, rich root. If you had a really literal translation, it might say the fatness of the root. The oiliness of the root. This root is fat. It's rich. It's strong. It's large. It has all the blessings, all the nutritional richness. And you Gentile, you are a wild uncircumcised Philistine and God took you and he circumcised your heart and put you in that tree and now you're connected to the riches that God promised to Abraham. This is what Paul's getting at in Galatians 3.14. He says when Christ was crucified for sinners, it was in order that in, in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Those who have faith and the promised Davidic king. Get connected to the richness and the nutrients flow to us wild branches. Sometimes we don't think rightly about ourselves, especially before we were saved. But even now, just go back to Romans 3 in your spare time later this afternoon and read and remind yourself of who you were before you were saved in Christ. We weren't even what we are now. But we were even worse, I think, than we sometimes remember. As the years roll by as a Christian, you forget how sinful your heart was. Romans 3 is a good reminder. Romans 1 as well. So we're attached to this rich root. So what's the point, Paul? What's the application here that he's getting at? Verse 18, do not boast against the branches. Don't boast against the branches. What have you done? I'm not seeing that we grafted ourselves in. Do you see that in your Bible? If you do, get rid of it. We didn't graft ourselves in. We didn't break any branches all. Who's doing? Who is the gardener? God. Don't boast 
against the branches. To boast just simply means to talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. But this Greek word is even stronger than just a regular boast. It's boasting against. It's what the gladiator would do once he's conquered his foe in the arena. He's not just boasting that he's awesome, but he is boasting over the person that's now been defeated and on the ground. There's an air of competitive superiority. You, you wild branch, grafted in, don't boast over the branches that were broken off or even the ones that are left there. Don't be boastful. Sometimes we can think we're better than the person next door. We can think, well, they didn't believe, but I believe. You know, I was so, so wise, so holy that I came to saving faith. But everyone else just can't see what I saw. That's not what the Bible says about you. The Bible says not many wise. Not many that are wise according to the world. Not many who are mighty. You are a wild, scraggly little bush. Like those cactus plants out in Texas that nobody wants to get around. And God came and he cut you and put you on a tree that made you set apart. That made you holy. But Paul says, if you do boast, if you do boast against them, if you do slip up and think you're superior to them, remember this. It's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. This is supposed to be a reminder. The church is grafted onto the root of Israel. The root of Israel. Yeah, I'm using that to speak of the descendants of Abraham. If we go all the way down, yes, it is Abraham. But what holds you up? Abraham, the covenants that were given to him. Israel, the physical descendants. Some are broken off. God grafts you in. Remember, the root supports you. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? And she's arguing that the Samaritans are right. That this mixed religion that they have, they're really just pagans who adopted some Judaism into their culture. She's saying, well, we worship on our mountain and you worship on yours. She's challenging him. Who's right? You claim to be this special prophet or Messiah. Who's right about this? And Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. That's a nice way of saying you're wrong. And then he says, we worship what we know. We have the right thinking on this. And then he makes an interesting statement. For salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? Does that mean modern Judaism is somehow something we need to look into for salvation? No, he's simply saying that salvation comes from the Jews because it's from the root, which is Abraham. And that if they want to learn about the Messiah, they need to look at the Jewish scriptures. They need to look at the Bible. They need to come to the temple and hear the the scriptures read and hear Jesus teaching in the day that he was there and then the apostles. The root supports the Gentile Christians. The branches are supported by the root. They do not replace the root. The branches don't come in and dig up the root and throw it out and plant themselves in the ground. Paul makes a clear description here. The root supports the branches. There's nothing to boast about. It's all of God's grace. If it wasn't for God grafting you in, then you would still be outside the covenants and promises. You'd be lost. So instead of boasting, let's just praise the Lord. Let's be thankful. Let's be grateful for what he's done. The third basic here of the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles. Number three, faith in Christ keeps the branches grafted into the tree. That's verses 19 and 20. 
the Gentile Christian stands upon faith in Jesus that God has given us. Not any kind of arrogant place of superiority. Sometimes when people hear preaching from Romans 11 or that God will fulfill the promises to Israel, they think, and, and there's probably some preachers out there, maybe not too far from us, who indicate this, that Jews will be saved in a different path. That all Israel will be saved means somehow that they will be saved by obeying the law or just being Jewish or just being born. There's a, there's a famous pastor not too far from here who says, just being born a Jew means that you have those promises of salvation. And for the Gentiles, you've got to go in a different way. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Paul's saying. And he's going to make it super clear here by bringing up faith. These promises are not disconnected from faith. It's not as if the promise to Abraham had nothing to do with faith. We already saw that in Romans 4. It was through faith that he was credited with righteousness. And it's the same in the new covenant. You don't get the blessings of the new covenant unless you have faith. All Israel will be saved means they will have faith. And we'll come to that in time. So faith in Christ keeps the branches grafted into the tree. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Okay, fine, Paul. I don't want to be prideful like I grafted myself in. Branches were broken off. You can imagine the, the Gentile Christians in the Roman church saying this. That's why Paul's quoting it. His objector here is making a partial acceptance of what's been said, but also arguing another point. He's saying, yes, I, I've been grafted in. I've been grafted into the rich root. But this means that the Jews were not good enough. This means that the broken branches were not good enough. And so God chose a better people. Tom Schreiner rephrases the question like this. What could this mean except the Gentiles were superior to the Jews and that they were chosen by God because of their supremacy? That's the idea behind the question. And Schreiner's not holding that view. He's saying that's how we could rephrase what Paul is saying here in this statement. Oh yeah, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, so that I might be part of this. And he says, quite right. I don't think he's being sarcastic here. He's saying, what you say is true. What you say is true. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story than just what's been said so far. Unbelieving Jews were broken off the tree. Believing Gentiles were grafted into it. This is all in the plan of God. We saw that in Romans 11, verse 11, 11, chapter 11, verse 11 and verse 12. But look what he says after quite right. You're, you're right, but there's more to the story. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. This whole description here is not disconnected from faith. It's not as if there's two ways of salvation. There's one way of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. All by his grace alone. Gentiles were grafted in. And they were only grafted in due to their faith. Now faith is not something you can boast in. Faith is not something you can boast in. You can boast in your works. If somehow you could earn salvation and you did that, you could boast in that, but there's no possible way to do that. Faith is not something you boast in. He says, remember that. You only stand by your faith. Faith in Christ doesn't say, look at me, I'm so special. Faith in Christ says, I'm a poor sinner. I'm a beggar just needing some bread, knocking on the door of heaven, asking for salvation. Faith means that you couldn't save yourself, so you had to trust in somebody else to do it for you. There's no boasting in faith. 
Faith says, I'm weak. I'm lost. I'm dead. I'm like a skeleton at the bottom of the deepest trench in the ocean. Please, God, come and shine a light on my darkness and revive me. That's faith. Faith has no place to boast. And Paul says, just remember, yes, you stand. And it's even in the perfect tense here. You you have stood since God saved you, but it's because of your faith. And where does faith come from? Well, he'll talk more about that. We'll get to that next week. It comes from the kindness of God. So we can't even boast in our faith. Then he says, do not be haughty. Literally, do not think lofty things about yourself. Don't be haughty. Or maybe your translation says arrogant. Don't think lofty things. Usually this Greek word is meant to speak of heavenly things that are high up. Don't think of yourself as so special that you somehow put yourself in heaven. He uses the same word over in Romans 12. We'll come to it in time, but Romans 12, 16. The same word here for lofty things, for heavenly high up things. 12, 16, by being of the same, same mind toward one another in the church. Not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. Don't think that you're so special that God just couldn't have done it without you. He could have chosen anybody. He didn't choose you. And Romans 9 made clear in Romans 8. He didn't choose you because of something you had earned. Something you had done to twist his arm. He has his purpose for choosing you. But you do not know what that is. It's just for his glory. Paul says, don't don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't place yourself on a pedestal. Don't exalt yourself. Stop thinking highly of your accomplishments. Stop looking down your nose even at unbelieving Jews. We don't look down our nose at unbelieving Gentiles, I hope. Shouldn't do that with unbelieving Jews. For who regards you, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? When you receive something, it's given to you as a gift. You didn't earn it, so you can't boast about it. If you're so poor and needy that you needed salvation, why would you boast about that? You can't. Receiving the rich root here means that God gave it. You didn't earn it. He grafted you in. You had nothing to do to earn it or to put yourself over on that cultivated olive tree. God did it all. So Paul says, instead of being arrogant, instead of being prideful, here's what you should do. Fear. Fear. Now in Christianity today, it's all prosperity. It's all people who say, God's ready to bless you. And God's ready to give you all of these things. And then you stop at a verse like this and it says, fear. And a lot of people don't understand what that means. They only know fear of God as punishment. Fear of God as judgment. Yes, that's in the Bible. But a believer can and should fear God. Yes, there's blessings. Yes, there's, there's spiritual prosperity. God doesn't promise to make us all rich, of course. There's spiritual richness, though. The rich root that we're connected to. But instead of boasting, you should do the opposite, which is fear God. Tremble. Some translations here say, be afraid. Some try to smooth it out and, and make it just say, awe or reverence. Yeah, that's built into fear. To awe, to be in awe of God, to respect God, to reverence Him like a child would towards his father. That's part of fear, but that's not all of fear. 
fear is just to tremble. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a holy God that we serve. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Where do you have a place to boast? You should be in awe and reverence towards God. You should be shaking. You should be in tears when you think about this, of what God has done for you. You wild olive. We're just a bunch of wild, scraggly bushes. God did this for us. No boasting. That's fear. Not a fear of judgment, but a fear of the Almighty. A fear of the power of God and His majesty and His glory. A fear like Isaiah had in the temple when he saw a vision of God. A fear like John had when he sees his Savior. John's not doubting his salvation. He's not thinking Christ has come to judge him. He's in fear and he falls down in Revelation chapter 1. He thinks he's going to die as all people did when they saw the glory of God in the Bible. Fear like the psalmists say. Psalm 118.4, Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. The believer who fears the Lord understands that God's loving kindness will last forever and ever. Psalm 130, verse 4, But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's forgiveness. In other words, you can come to God and be forgiven of all your sin. And one of the purposes is that you may be feared, that you would fear God. There's forgiveness with God. And one of the purposes that he is working in us when we're saved is that we would fear him. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says, to fear God, to trust God, to love God, and to know God. These are really one and the same thing. It's having a zealous for the Lord. It's when people say, why do you go to that church that focuses on the Bible, focuses on doctrine, expects you to be there regularly and worship and serve one another and love one another? And say, fear of God. I have a zealousness for the Lord. I want to serve Him with all my life. I don't want to boast about anything I've done. You probably know Amazing Grace, but you forget maybe this line. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Not I was afraid and then I came to grace, but it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace came first and then He's talking about fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. So now he's talking about the fear of judgment. But first he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace that taught my fears of judgment to be relieved. How precious did the grace appear the hour I first believed." That's what we're talking about here. Yes, it's about Jews. It's about, it's about Gentiles. It's about the nation of Israel. But ultimately it comes down to God's plan, God's sovereignty, God's grace. And you only receive his grace through faith. So we'll pick up next week and cover the last two. And it gets even more challenging, more imperatives thrown at us dealing with unbelief in the next section. Lord, thank you for your word. Sometimes it is a challenge for us to study. You make it so that we have to work at it. We're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful that you have given us a mind to study, a heart to love the word. Help us to apply it. Let us never boast and what you've given us. Let us only boast in you. When we tell others about what you've done, let it be a boast in what Christ has done, what you, Father, have done through Christ, what the Spirit is doing right now in us, but never about us. I pray that we could love our Jewish brothers in Christ and love the unbelieving Jews enough to evangelize to them. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.